From a pineapple under the sea, it's the IGN Digigods. Now please welcome SpongeBob and Patrick, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. So I guess that makes me SpongeBob and you, Patrick. All right, Corey. Who so dubbed us with such honor? Sent by Chevelle Dixon. Chevelle, I'm, I'm wondering if you don't have that backwards. I'm wondering if uh, Wade is uh, Patrick and uh, Mark is SpongeBob. No. No comment. No. I want to be SpongeBob. I, I want to be SpongeBob. <laughs> I won't let my daughter watch that show. Really? No. Why, too psychedelic or something? No, it's just too busy. It's too loud. It's too... How do you know? How, how, how will you know until she sees it? No, because I just... We, there are certain shows that she really responds to, and she responds to the... You know what? She's, she's very sensitive. She is. She's very sensitive. She, we, Peppa okay, Pig look. is it. That's okay, the, look. That's the deal. So... And Peg and Cat is fine. Look, the, the Jason Reitman film, Men, Women, and Children. Yes. Right? Right. Now, you know the um, Jennifer Garner role? Yep. She plays the overprotective right mother? Yep, right here. Are you the overprotective? Yep. I'm going to I'm going to monitor every keystroke yep. on your computer put a and your iPad and I'm your gonna, iPhone. That's it, absolutely. I'm going to sit there like some kind of Hal, all-seeing Hal 9000, Lord Overseer, monitoring every device and every moment and reading through the logs. And, you are. Yep. Because yep. that's what Jennifer Garner does. I know. <laughs> it's actually she does a great job of that character. That could very easily have been a, a, a you know cardboard cutout that character. Yeah, you know what? That I, I I never found her, and and again that might be why she was good for that role. I never found her a very warm or, or emotional or romantic or yeah. even particularly interesting actress. Yeah, you know. So when she plays cold characters like that, it's kind of her wheelhouse. Yep. But you know, I I here's, here's what I want. I want. I want a female character. Sure. How come every female character... I want a female character. How come every female character who plays something like very severe mm-hmm. and humorless always has their hair tied back? Always. Because no. they have to look severe. <laughs> you know, I have to... This is interesting. There was a, there's a blog post. I have to go back and check it out. Alonzo uh, posted this on his, on his Facebook page. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy who read a blog where he did... He analyzed the faces of uh, Pixar characters. In every Pixar movie, and and the and basically kind of did a a, um, a a shape analysis of where the nose is, where the jaw is, you know, just the general graphic outline of the face, and then you know remove all of the details, and all you see is just the line of where the nose and the eyes and the jawline is, and the male faces are always very angular and interesting. Every single female face is is just like a round jawline with a little pointy nose and and button and button and, and, and pouty mouth. It's like it's it's there's no diversity in the way that women are, are portrayed. They all have these little little cookie faces, these cute little button noses. Every single one. And what does and that tell like, you? It, well, it was it's a very funny blog post. It's like WTF Pixar? What's going on? Interesting. Yeah. Wonder what that so, means. I don't know. So, so getting into our releases this week, I, I just off off the top, I just want to say, why did the Super Bowl? Why was the Super Bowl this year named after a laxative? No, not not a good joke. No, you're you're shaking your head. Stop. <laughs> just please stop. Okay. All right. So, a Super Bowl X licks. Uh, the New England Patriots were the champions, and of course, we Mark Mark is looks completely exasperated by that attempted humor. I'm so sorry. Uh, so this is the official uh, Super Bowl Blu-ray to basically p- 
pillage money from the pockets of people in uh, in Boston. That's pretty much it. I, you know what? I have to I have to make a confession. What? Except for baseball, yeah, which I love and watch all the time. Yeah, I have decided that I don't care about any other sports. Super Bowl couldn't care less. Yeah, I watched it because that's what people do. Could not care less. Don't know who was in it. I think there was a team, and then there was probably a second team. I, I, that that well, much I know. This just takes you through their whole wonderful season, and these things are just designed really to just stroke fans. That's all it is. Yeah, but baseball has it too. Tons you know, they had the uh, sure, San Francisco Giants. Sure. That's how they make their money. It's all right. So you know, if you're if you're a big Tom Brady worshiper and you love the Patriots and you're thrilled that they got another Super Bowl, then just go get this. And if you if you hate them or if you don't care, obviously you're not going to care. So you <laughs> if you don't care, you're not going to care, Wade Major. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, and then, uh, Mark, let's let's do some some music, and then we'll jump into the uh, the really really you know the, the some of the big titles this week. Uh, Wade, we have uh, start off with a uh, music cares tribute to Paul McCartney. Now, this is a bunch of uh, artists uh, singing Paul McCartney uh, songs, as well as Paul McCartney singing Paul McCartney songs. So, all this stuff depends on the artist and their interpretation of the song. Now, the great thing about McCartney songs is that they can be interpreted any number of ways. You can do them slow. You can do them fast. You can make a country. You can do jazz. I mean, the, his songs are him and Lennon. They're obviously this is just McCartney, but uh, the songs are very malleable. They're just great songs. They're totally timeless. And my favorites were um, uh, James Taylor doing "Yesterday" and um, Dan Crawl and James Taylor doing "For No One" and uh, a bunch of good stuff too. I'm telling you, Magical Mystery Tour. McCartney does that himself. Um, I just think this is just terrific. Again, this is for the Music Hairs. Uh, charity so there you go a music cares tribute to paul mccartney check it out if you're a mccartney fan for the mccartney fan in your family and i gotta say i'm a devo fan going way back love me some devo devo was a big deal in the 80s when i was in high school and uh i remember when devo came around with the uh the flower pot hats and the you know the the the, the, the rubber hair and the whole deal and uh crack that whip whip it good and we were like yeah, these guys are unlike anything i've ever seen before and it was yeah it was punk but it was poppy and it was new age and new wave and the whole the whole thing it 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 was it was it was cool well anyway devo actually kind of came on the scene in the late 70s and um they came they you know they're from ohio originally and uh they are still doing it and i have seen devo live in just a few years ago they are tight. They are tighter, and they are better than they ever were uh, when they were young. Just absolutely fantastic. So this is a really cool new concert film uh, called Hardcore Devo Live, and this premiered last year at the CBGB Music and Film Festival and got really great uh, reaction. This was made by a filmmaker named Kirda Baruth. And uh, it, it just again, this is just for this is straight up for Diva fans. You're gonna love this. Uh, the, all the songs that you want are here, every single one of them, including stuff that like only hardcore Diva fans like. Uh, their version of Satisfaction is still so unbelievably awesome and homo. Jocko Homo, always love Jocko Homo. Um, uh, Space Girl Blues, Baby Talking Bitches, Fraulein. No one knows all those songs. Midget. I no mean, one knows all those songs. I know, but this is like, this is really, really awesome stuff. This is all, this is like their, this is their mid to late 70s stuff, and it's really, really cool. And, uh, you know, you get, uh, you get a concert only version among the extras, alternate opening, and a building satisfaction guitar. So, um,. I, I recommend this for Devo fans. This is essential for your your, your ultimate Devo compilation on Blu-ray. Uh, Wade, pr- a pretty good uh, festival of Blu-ray is uh, live at Nebworth. Nebworth was a series of um, 
rock concerts over in the uh, UK. And um, here we have from 1990 uh, a bunch of the Nebworth guys getting together to benefit uh, the Brit School and the North Robbins Music Therapy Charity. So um, all you're wondering is uh, who's on this thing? Well, we have Tears for Fears. Everyone here does about two, three songs. Uh, Tears for Fears, Phil Collins, Paul McCartney. Speaking of Paul McCartney, uh, Pink Floyd, of course, without Roger Waters, but still Pink Floyd, uh, Genesis, and uh, Robert Plant, Eric Clapton, Dire Straits. So a lot of great artists of that time. Uh, The Blu-ray looks fine. It's uh, from 1990, so it's a little bit uh, before the uh, full-on high-def era. So, uh, But it sounds great, and I guess that's the most important thing. So live at Nebworth for the Dire Straits fan and your family. Awesome. I'm a Dire Straits fan. I'm kind of a crooked. I'm kind of a crooked Straits fan. That, that Man, do, you're, that, you're on a roll today. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, it's been a long day. So, uh, Jake Isles Band, House Party, live in Germany. This yeah! Is, this, is, this is a DVD-CD combo set that comes in a CD keep case. So it doesn't look like it has a DVD in it. You're going to look at it and you go, oh, it's just a CD. There's no, no, there's a DVD in it as well. Wow. Yes. So just need you to know that. Um, this is pretty great. Uh, the, uh, this was in 1979. And uh, when, the, uh, when Jay Giles' band went to Essen in Germany, where a cousin of mine currently lives still, and uh, they, perf- they did a performance for uh, Rock Palast, which is, you know, the legendary television show. And uh, it's great. It's absolutely terrific. Uh, we normally, when we think of the Jay Giles Band, we basically, what do you think of? Centerfold. Right. And what else? No, 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 wait, no. I, I used to have the greatest hits. Right. But what I'm saying, what, but I know other people. It, Love no, Stinks. Okay. Well, I'm not going to name their whole. Th- but I'm saying you had to work at it. Okay. Centerfold, Love Stinks. Wait. Oh, freeze frame. Freeze frame. That's the other big one, sure. So anyway, that's the that's the thing. Now I feel terrible. No, but it's true. It's like you know they're they're not one of those bands that everybody thinks. Oh well, and you can just like you know like Led Zeppelin. You can just go down you know twenty or thirty songs, or you know uh, the Stones or whatever. Even even Dire Straits. You know, it's just like, well, they weren't around. They weren't around that long. Right. But they're a great band. That's yeah, the thing. They're so, a fun live band. So you're, you, when you see this, you're like, wow, these guys are so much better. I, like, I only remember you know, a handful of songs, but there's a lot of great stuff. Because you know, they're also, get this, so Jay Giles is touring with Bob Seger. Uh-huh. I love Bob Seger too growing up. There you go. And Jay Giles. Well, Basically, I like bad music, I think is the moral of that story. Well, a lot of great tracks here. Nightmares is a great track. Whammer Jammer. Whammer Jammer is a, is a terrific track. You don't know what you're talking about. I do. I do. Whammer Jammer is great. Sing it, go. I'm not even. Whammer jammer! <laughs> you're not gonna. You're not gonna get me to Whammer sing anything. Whammer jammer! You're, 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 I'll let you sing from the the one we're gonna be covering here in a moment. Um, and uh, looking for a love, give it to me. Uh, pack fair and square. It's it's a, it's a fun set. So it it comes in a CD case. If you see it in stores, it's got a DVD in it as well. So there you go. Uh, Mark, let's uh, let's let's discuss newish movies. Funny that movie doesn't look newish. Now you were not a fan of Into the Woods. You know, here's the thing with Into the Woods. I did not see the I did not see the show, the uh, Broadway play. Okay. So I knew nothing about it going in. Okay. I thought two things. Yes. First of all, who is directing Chris Pine to act that way? Because <laughs> I I'm so annoyed. He's so overdoing. Now I didn't realize that in the play he was like this uh, this unctuous, obnoxious yes. uh, type guy. The other thing I thought is that like 45 minutes into the film. They find all the elements that they need in order to reverse the curse. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's a short movie. Yeah. 
and then it turns out that there's like I like I was done with the movie. I thought the movie was over. So by yeah. the, now there's like another hour to go. Yeah, and you're like, eh, I'm over it. Okay, now I enjoyed Into the Woods. My here's my here's my pitch on this though. I've seen this performed. It's long when it's performed. This is you know the, the this feature version is is just barely over two hours. When you see this performed on stage, minus intermission, it's three hours. So this is like two thirds of. I mean, this thing is almost like feels like greatest hits. It blows along the, the on stage. It doesn't move quite this rapidly. It feels much more epic, but it's also darker. And it, that twist, once you think that everything has kind of come to closure, then it goes from being um, this sort of fairy tale pastiche, this you know satirical fairy tale pastiche, this very sort of lovingly satirical thing. Then it becomes this really sort of dark and brooding and meditative existential meditation on life and you know uh, the, the 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 dark realities that life presents to all of us and is life even really a fairy tale? There are no fairy tales. It really turns on you. And a lot of people have always thought that that was a a dark miscalculation by Sondheim. I think it's a brave thing. But that said, Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods is not what this is. This is Disney's Into the Woods. And it's enjoyable in its own right, but you should not confuse the two. Disney definitely took Sondheim's musical, and they put their own spin on it and their own twist, and they pared it down and cast all of these wonderful actors that we all love and adore and uh, made their own thing out of it. And I, it's not the same thing, but it is a probably a more family-friendly version. So I recommend it with some reservations, which is saying something because I think Rob Marshall is a crap director. I, 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 this is like the first Rob Marshall film I've ever seen where I was like, I actually kind of enjoy this. I, I don't hate what he's doing. Um, still could do with some better editing, but uh, you know that's never been his strong suit. So I, I found this to be thoroughly enjoyable. Um, and uh, you know Meryl Streep got an Oscar nomination. Perfectly wonderful. For some reason. Uh, and because she's in it. That's why she got an Oscar nomination. <laughs> Meryl, Meryl Streep, you point a camera at her, and she goes, uh, then that's it. She gets a nomination. Didn't you know the rule? You didn't know that, did See, you? See, that's not right. Someday the Academy <laughs> will, be able to, will be able to edge down the average age of a member so that maybe they won't be so reflexively interested in awarding her they're a nomination. Never, they're never going to edge that age down. They just won't. It's not, it's not mathematically possible unless you, like, it, you, they fire everyone who's in the Academy and they just replace, like, automatically just admit. Well, no, the older, the, the older members die out. Yeah, of course they do, but they only admit like 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 people per year. By the time you admit enough new members to become a significant contingent in the academy, enough years have passed that all those new members are now in their 50s and 60s. Well, that, that's, that's the thing, too, because if, if you're going to be a member, of the, they're, they're only going to extend invitations to people who have, who have achieved a certain amount of success yeah. in their field, and that's not going to happen if you're, 19, I, I, if you're Miles no, Teller. No, you're never, ever going to have a majority of people in the academy in their 20s and 30s. It's just never going to happen. It's always going to be a group of people who are in their 50s and 60s. That's just that's the, 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 the mathematics of attrition just work out that way. Anyway, uh, there's some fun extras here. Um, there's a uh, you know little, little all this behind-the-scenes featurette stuff, the usual deal, um, and uh, a filmmaker commentary that is adequate, and uh, you know you can uh, jump around to just the songs if you want, which is always fun. And then there is, of course, the uh, brand new Stephen Sondheim song "She'll Be Back," which is uh, is you know performed specifically for the film, and Sondheim wrote it specifically for the film. Uh, so uh, yeah, in, in the woods, 
good good family film from material that I would not have expected to be quite so family friendly. And by the way, we we should mention that Cinderella, the new Disney Cinderella, which is also spoofed in the film, uh, is just is tearing it up right now. It really is. That film is just ripping it up, and I could not be happier because Kenneth Branagh's career is on track again. You know, thanks to Thor. I mean, isn't that amazing? Thor got that guy back on track. Thor got him on track, and he now Cinderella. He can maybe he can do like a great Shakespeare film again. No, I want. I, I really want him to just go back to those roots and do something amazing. I agree. Give him some money. Let him do you know like Henry the Sixth or something. No, but he should do the hip hop version. That's that'd be, what he should do. That'd be cool. There you go. You know, I, you know, I'd love to see him do. Honestly, I would love to see Kenneth Branagh do Twelfth Night. I really would. I think that would be so much fun. Okay. Uh, I'm just saying. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. As you were, as you like it. As you oh, as you wish, Princess yeah. Bride. The Hobbit, the Battle of Five Armies, uh, 3D. Uh, this is the uh, final. Now, you, and this is the final of the Hobbit uh, things where they run around and there's orcs and uh, yep. I don't know what's going on anymore. I just, I just, I can't. Wade, you like these movies more I than do. I do. I just, I, I do. I, I, you know, I feel with the with the, with the other one, Lord of the Rings. I yeah. feel I was done with that world. I didn't need more See, orcs and, and people running around in, in like Ren Faire costumes. I and like whatever. these films better. Uh, really? I do. Now, why I is really that? do. I, you know what? I'm not, I, I've tried to figure it out, and I think it's because each one of the Lord of the Rings films was like the same story. It was just the same crap. It was like some big battle. And part of it is because I really like Martin Freeman. I really like Martin Freeman. And, and I make fun of these films, too. I mean, look, the, if there is a consistent theme in the Hobbit films, it is that... Um, He's Bilbo, right? Frodo's the yeah. Well, it's anyway, William Bow. I get my baggins all mixed up. Um, but uh, if there's a if it, it, if there's a theme to this, it is that Martin Freeman cannot hold on to anything to save his life. He is the most insufferable butterfingers on the planet. If you give him something of value, whether it's a sword, a ring, uh, whatever, anything you give him, give him ten seconds, he will drop that sucker off a cliff. That happens at least fifty times in these in these films. But anyway, uh, no, I think I think uh, I think the Hobbit is uh, is a fun. It's it, it is a. I, I really like what they did with it. I do. I like the I like the whole. I, I didn't think I would. They took a small book and blew it up into three big overbloated movies. And I thought there's just not enough there. There, the, you know, the Lord of the Rings is this huge epic, and they made three movies out of that. And, and the Hobbit really doesn't justify more than a single movie. But Somehow they, they, they made it work, and I think they did a lovely job, and I really applaud them for it. So Peter Jackson still has it going on. Unfortunately, most everybody was done with that world with The Lord of the Rings, and this has been belaboring the point. But I, I think it's fun. I like all the extras on it. I think, uh, I think it's good. Well, now that Peter Jackson has spent you know, the last yeah. 12 years working on these movies, can he please go back and do something else? Yeah, but but when he tried to do that, he gave us uh, the 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 Watchmen. Your uh, King Kong, uh, no, not King Kong. The other one that was such a such a oh the the the, the murder thing. Uh, oh, it was uh, hang on, don't stop the recording. Yeah, the one I, the, the one I'm desperately trying to block because it just it just oh is that Lovely Bones? The, that was it, the Lovely Bones. Yeah, that just the thing is that I'm I, I'm I'm almost afraid that 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 just uh, was not he's right. been co opted by like. The Guillermo del Toros and some of the really like the Alfonso Cuarón, some of the really cool guys who do that big special effects stuff. And Peter Jackson almost feels like he feels like a relic of like another era now. It's it's weird because he spent so long doing this that this is uh, this is sort of everyone. It defines him now. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I I mean, he's still in. I mean, look. Does he need to work anymore? (laughs) I'm sure, but that doesn't mean he doesn't want to. I mean, he's he's in his fifties now. He's still young enough to work. Sure. 
Sure. Uh, a couple of uh, a couple of titles from the uh, Kino Lorber Studio Classics line. These are a couple of really interesting ones this week. Um, Cover Up is an Alfred E. Green film with William Bendix, uh, Barbara Britton, and Dennis O'Keefe. Uh, made in 1949, good old hard-hitting noir from the golden age of noir. We, it, it's a, this is like a second-tier noir. You know, Alfred E. Green was a guy, one of those workmanlike studio studio journeymen, and uh, William Bendix. You know, he's got that 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 tough guy face. You know, he's got that boxer face. Uh, no great stars in this. Barbara Britton, Britton wasn't anything at the time. Dennis O'Keefe, you know, had a, had a, did a few things, um, but still, this is you know, this is um, this is good second tier kind of uh, noir of the era. It's it, it's got it's got a few things going for it. Um, it feels a little bit like a rehash in some sense of. Um, uh, double Indemnity, but it, there uh, is nothing like Double Indemnity. But it's not a bad. I, re- I rewatched Double Indemnity a few weeks ago. It's so good. Yeah, but it's uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it, it, it's you know, it's, it feels a little bit kind of Double Indemnity ish. It's not the same story, but it's it has certain elements of it. You know, the 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 insurance angle and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's perfectly fine, and might you know the, the, what really makes it uh, hum is the uh, Ernest Laszlo cinematography. It just has that great noir feel. Um, much more awesome, much more way awesome is the Hal Walker film from the following year in 1950, At War with the Army, which is uh, just the outrageously awesome hijinks of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Yeah. We don't get a lot of their stuff. Uh, They're really starting to crank the Martin yeah. Lewis stuff out. They're getting it out there finally, and thank goodness. Uh, this is a lot of fun. This is really, really fun. Uh, if you, I mean, we, we talked last week about uh, Gomer Pyle. No. Gomer Pyle was like the warrior of the decade compared to Jerry Lewis in this movie. Jerry Lewis is the guy that you ju- just do not want to put that man in a helmet. So Gomer Pyle was the American sniper compared to... Gomer Pyle is totally American sniper compared to Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, this is a lot of fun. I mean, all you need to do is just, uh, you know, take them and stick them in, in uniforms, and, you know, it's funny. It's just instantly funny. And uh, this was the, kind of the one that started it. They, they were in other movies prior to this. They were in My Friend Irma and My Friend Irma Goes West. And uh, this is when they really said, you know, maybe we should take Martin and Lewis and just let them have their own movie. Let them, let them just do their shtick and, let, and go crazy. And they'd go on to do you know, another 13 films together before Jerry Lewis went out on his own and made even better films. Uh, but you, you can tell, this is just really classic. It is incredibly funny. Uh, their chemistry is magnificent. The photography is good. Hal Walker directs the hell out of it, and it's a really fun film. And that's on Blu-ray from Kino, and you got to get it. You just got to get it. You got to rent it. You, well, you got to own it. You got to own it. Wade, uh, once again, we're talking about uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Wade always gives me these. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, when is this I, 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 it's, uh, Well, the show went on for years, man. I know. Well, forever. This is, uh, this is number 32 in a series. Uh, never on DVD. We have the Radar Secret Service, San Francisco International, Hercules, and Space Travelers. Hercules is one of the um, more famous ones of the series. Got to watch Hercules. Um, all I care about are the shorts. And, uh, you know, got to love the shorts. And then uh, that's it. I don't know what to say anymore about these. I mean, you know. And the funny thing is that I find myself going to YouTube just to watch the shorts. Like not really wanting to sit down for two hours and watch one of these things. Yeah, or or I'll sit down for an hour and a half and I'll speed through the, uh, the interstitials. <clears throat> sure. The interstitials. Sure. That take place on the ship. 
So I don't know what to tell you, man. If you're, if you're a completist, you can't not get uh, number 32, but let's just say that unless you love Hercules, which is one of the more famous and funny ones of that, of, uh, that time of the show's history, um, I, you're, you're, you're just as better served uh, you know, to get, getting one of the other 31 previous ones. So as long as we're on the subject of uh, exploitation films and, and schlocky movies, we're, we got a bunch of, uh, we got a bunch in the genre to just uh, rip through real quickly here. All of these, which would be uh, sort of serviceably uh, schlocky for uh, some uh, some uh, mystery science theater. One of them is Exterminators of the Year 3000, a, fu- a futuristic film of survival. This is from the uh, Shop Factory line, line Scream Factory. This was made in 1983, and it was a complete and total shameless uh, attempt to do a, uh, a Road Warrior Mad Max film. Uh, that was not part of the Mad Max. It, basically, here we, you know we can we can put people in uh, you know crazy cars and f- apocalyptic outfits with mohawks and and you know weird uh, outfits, and we can we can do that as well as anybody. The thing is, they can't really. Uh, so this shameless Mad Max ripoff was made in 1983. Exterminators of the Year 3000. And uh, I don't find it very interesting. I don't find it very enjoyable. I don't find it very funny. It, it, it's it, you know it's just basically uh, an American director and an Italian crew shooting this in Italy, and it's just it just feels so derivative. But I you know what it has kind of a weird cult following precisely because it is a knockoff. So I don't know maybe maybe I'm just missing the boat on that one. Um, uh, more popular is the trauma film Rabid Grannies which is one of those trauma films that just keeps coming back and back and back. It obviously doesn't have quite the following that The Toxic Avenger does, but just the title, Rabid Grannies, uh, really has given this thing a life far beyond what it ever should have had. This was made in 1988. I still bump into people who uh, just start giggling like schoolgirls when you mention Rabid Grannies. And uh, and honestly, i got to tell you, the movie is, is not very funny either. Um, it, it, but it, it, nothing by Lloyd Kaufman really is. You sort of laugh at them more than you laugh with them. That said, uh, it's on Blu-ray, and boy, does it really look bad. Uh, just the worst photography ever and the worst gore effects ever. Also a DVD on this, so it's a combo set. And uh, God Told Me To, from Blue Underground, um, maybe one of the better films that we're going to be talking about from this class uh, this week because this one comes from Larry Cohen. And Larry Cohen, it just even when he was working with, you know, he just somehow always found a way. Uh, Larry Cohen, of course, did, you know, so many different things uh, over the course of his career, from writing and directing black exploitation stuff like Black Caesar to, you know, Q, The Winged Serpent, to the uh, in, surprisingly good screenplay for Phone Booth, which was originally going to be directed by Hitchcock, wound up being directed by Joel Schumacher. And, uh, you know, Larry Cohen is just one of those guys who could just, you know, he could will a movie into existence. And uh, this is one of his more interesting films from a period when, you know, he was doing a lot of really low-level stuff. But um, God Told Me To is really, um, it, it deals in some respects with some of the same things that were going on with a lot of movies in the exploitation era, like Targets, when uh, Bogdanovich did Targets, which sure. is, you know, the whole lone shooter thing. Um, this is a similar thing. you got a guy uh, in New York who kills a whole bunch of pedestrians just sniping them down from, uh, from a rooftop. 
And by the way, you know, Dirty Harry obviously did that as well. Dirty Harry was dealing, had starts with that whole sniper thing, right? I mean, that got into the zeitgeist at the time. So anyway, Larry Cohen um, starts with that. And then this thing evolves into this analysis of violence in American society that is absolutely chilling. And at the time, this felt very exploitative. But when you look at this now in the wake of school shootings and all of these other you know, workplace violence and you know, going postal in the 80s, um, suddenly you're like, maybe Larry Cohen was really onto something. And uh, you really get into a lot of that with the extras here. There's a Lincoln Center uh, Q&A session with Larry Cohen that is really phenomenal. It is really excellent. Definitely worth checking out. Also a Q&A that he did at the New Beverly when they screened this film. And uh, various other interviews with uh, people like Tony LoBianco. And uh, it, it, this, is a, this is a pretty solid, uh, solid film. It's a really interesting film that has taken on a whole new life of its own, uh, more so now than it did at the time. Transfer is really great. Blue Underground always does a really good job with these. Uh, did a 4K transfer. Put this thing on a Blu-ray. And one of the more unheralded films from Larry Cohen's career is now a reality on Blu-ray. Uh, and God, uh, it's God Told Me Too. Well, here's two uh, odd little movies to talk about. Um, Duke Mitchell um, was a uh, nightclub singer back in the day. He Actually, he was uh, connected to a Martin Lewis Yeah, way back when. Anyway, so um, he was a big fan of The Godfather, and even though he was just a nightclub singer and a uh, two-bit actor, he decided, I'm going to make my own Godfather-type film, my answer to The Godfather, self-financed with earnings from, uh, you know, from his time as a singer. So he wound up self-financing and making Massacre Mafia Style. Duke Mitchell's Massacre Mafia Style. Um, this is not a good movie, um, but it is an interesting... It's from 1974. It, I don't want to say it reminds me of The Room. It's not that bad. <laughs> but what I will say is that I like the fact that... It, 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 if I can uh, recommend this for any reason... It is just the power of a guy who earns some money and wants to spend it making a movie. His own money for his own vision, even though he knows it's low budget, he has a, he has a dream, and he's going to make that dream happen. And you know what? Duke Mitchell took his earnings from being a nightclub singer and made this movie. And it's very violent, and it's very much like The Godfather. And, uh, you know, it's you've really got to kind of hand it to him, at least on that basis. Again, not a great movie, but... You know, it's just it's it's very much a fun uh, product of its time. Uh, there's a lot of good special features on it. Grindhouse releasing put it out, and it's a great little find. Again, not a great movie, but a great little find. Very violent, very cool. Great history behind it. Um, there's Duke Mitchell Hall movies. There's a pretty decent high def uh, high def restoration, considering the low budget and old nature of the movie. Um, and interviews with. Um, uh, some of the actors in the film, including Jim Lobianco. And, uh, yeah, so it's interesting stuff. Massacre Mafia style. Like an interesting little roomish, room-esque sidebar in Hollywood history. Nice. Also, we have a, uh, a really bad movie called, uh, this is from 1980, I believe, called New Year's Evil. This is one of those. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> you know, they, they, they used to make these films by the dozens. You know, it's got oh, yeah. some high concept, uh, it's got some high concept thriller plot. And they just go through the motions until the bad guy dies. And this one, get this one, Wade. New Year's Evil is about a guy who's going to kill one person with each, each time zone change. Oh, as, 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 on, on New Year's Eve, right? As uh, each time, like East Coast, Central, yeah. West yeah. Coast, a new person is going to die. 
in the time zone? In the time zone. Okay, that's great. And it's going to... That's, that's, boy, that's creative serial killing. (laughs) It really is creative serial killing. But uh, you know what? Look, I mean, look, what what was Halloween? What was the fog? What was Friday the 13th? It's all that that stuff, you know? Zombievers. (laughs) You talked about that last week. Um, So, again, much like uh, the movie we just talked about, uh, New Year's Evil is not a great film, but it's definitely a product of its time. It's a little bit silly. But, uh, yeah, the guy's going to kill somebody in each of America's major time zones and, uh, you know, on New Year's Eve. It's just silly stuff. Whatever. What what can I say? All right. Uh, Yeah, finish that one up, and then I'll I'll hit these, and then we'll uh, we'll get into some docs. Now, when when Robert Englund starred as uh, Fred in the the Nightmare movies, you thought, God, if there's one film that Robert Englund, if there's one character Robert Englund was born to play, you know who it is? The Phantom. No, Phantom of the Opera. No, it's true. So Robert Englund actually played the Phantom in the Phantom of the Opera. Now again, this is like you know, this is a different version of Phantom of the Opera. This is not a this is not a particularly reverent version. Directed by a guy named Dwight H. Little, and it also co-stars Bill Nye, interesting, Alex Hyde White, and Molly Shannon, who would wind up in SNL, and uh, it was directed by the guy who did Halloween Four. So yeah, it's Freddy. Playing an opera singer, and uh, you know he's uh, there's this opera singer, just like the story. There's an opera singer, and she's uh, winds up in, Vic- in Victoria era London, and she winds up in the hands of this you know reclusive and disfigured uh, monster guy, who wears a mask, and what's he all about? And uh, yeah, so it's definitely a very interesting take on Phantom of the Opera. So it's uh, it's definitely again not reverent, but cheesy. And low budgety and hari and uh, yeah, interesting, fantabulous. All right, I have. Uh, we'll wrap up our uh, our schlock segment here with uh, three double features from Scream Factory, the Shout Factory line. Uh, and uh, you know, this is all. Uh, I, I these are all actually really good. Um, the movies aren't, but they all have a following and there's enough of a following that you don't feel like it's what they usually do with the double features which is pair a movie that everyone wants with something that nobody wants just as a way of you know getting it out there uh, first one is and this and you'll get it there's, a, there's like a whole you know they, they, they thought this through uh, love at first bite and once bitten right makes sense Yes. I mean, Love at First Bite, right? George Hamilton, the, yeah. whole, the whole Dracula comedy, That's right? That's right. And then Once Bitten, which was an early Jim Carrey thing uh, with Lauren Hutton, right? It's got a whole vampire angle. It's kind of a comedy. They're both vampire comedies. You know, makes sense. You could put those two together. Uh, Jim Carrey, really not great in this. Uh, mid-80s, you know, he's not that guy yet. He hasn't sort of uh, come of age. But it's, uh, it's, it's a novelty. It has kind of a following. Love at First Bite is actually a terrific film. Um, really, I, I think Love at First Bite still totally holds up. It's you know, it's it's very charming. It's, it's just re- it's really sweet. It's really very clever. And uh, Peter Medak, who directed it, you know, just such an unusual director. I mean, his career has been all over the map. He did one of my favorite films of the '90s, actually, which was Let Him Have It, which is this great British film. Uh, that should have gotten like Oscar nominations. I mean, it's a terrific movie. Let him have it. Is it seemed like Let it him was, have it? I wish that would come out on Blu-ray or DVD. I know, do. Let him have it. Seemed like one of those films that would be like the Long Good Friday, like kind of a classic yeah. British crime noiry thing. Yeah. And then and it was it was it was praised at the time. Yeah. But never became Christopher Eccleston. It was like his first big breakthrough. Yeah. You know. 
Uh, well, anyway, Peter Medak did a great job. Love at first bite. George Hamilton is great. Uh, Sherman Hemsley and, and Isabel Sanford from the Jeffersons are in this as well. I mean, it's just, you know, it's very much of its era, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, and then also keeping the vampire theme, we have Blackula and Scream Blackula Scream which came from the exploitation era, uh, and uh, these obviously belong together as a double feature. Uh, but this was taking exploitation film into a whole different era, and uh, there's a really great audio commentary on here by uh, David F. Walker, who kind of puts everything in the, uh, in, you know, the whole exploitation period, and these films in particular puts them in perspective, puts them in their context. Uh, and then also a great uh, interview with uh, actor Richard Lawson. So uh, I, you know, the Blackula films are not good by any, but they are they are significant from a historical and cultural standpoint. So uh, if you are into sort of collecting, you know, that era and archiving it, I would certainly recommend it. And then this one's interesting, uh, sort of continuing the vampire thing a little bit, but this is an interesting pairing: uh, Nicolas Cage in Vampire's Kiss with High Spirits. What? Right? Isn't that sort of interesting? Gla. Uh, now, Vampire's Kiss, I think, is a, a really underrated movie. I think Nicolas Cage is, uh, is so over the top. Uh, he's amazing. Uh, this is one of the few times that I actually like him over the top. I prefer him usually when he's doing things like Birdie or even being comedic like in Raising Arizona. Uh, Vampire's Kiss, he's completely unhinged, but in a great way. Uh, so that, I, I, uh, that part I enjoy. Um, high spirits, you know. Um, what do we think of high spirits, Mark? You know, again, it was um, one of those films at the time that would like star, you know, Bette Midler or would, like an early Sandra it's Bullock, just, and it just, or Daryl, like Daryl Hannah's in this, and it just, it's just, it's just big and poppy and silly and stupid. Never really all that magical or engaging. I just well, don't think it was Peter O'Toole's. It just seemed like a phone in. Here's for him. the thing: I, this movie has saved my bacon uh, many times. When I've had these trivia games, we used to play these trivia games when I worked at the theater, and I still do this on occasion. Where you, 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 you daisy chain movies. Like so, I will say to you, um, uh, Steve Gutenberg. And then you go Peter O'Toole. And then it's up to me to go, oh, they were together in, you know, high spirits. I have stumped so many people on, on, with that. It'll come to Peter O'Toole and you go, Steve Gutenberg. And they're like, Steve, Gut- Steve Gutenberg and Peter O'Toole were never in a movie together. What it's, are like, you, what it's like a Six Degrees game. It is, exactly. It's like high spirits. You lose. Out. And then that person's out. And, yeah, and it's, it's enabled me to win that game many times. That's a great way. This is so. I'm story. grateful for this movie for that because it is that trivia moment where I can connect Steve Gutenberg to Peter O'Toole and everyone else is stumped. By the way, at the office the other day, I don't know how this came up. Somebody uh, uh, went to that website where you can figure out what how many degrees you are away from Kevin Bacon. You type in your name and then it figures it out. Yeah. Well, and you would be the same. I'm, I was only like two degrees away. Yeah. Because it's stupid for movies. All right, I'm just saying. Okay, okay, that's fine. That's great. Okay. All right, uh, what, are, are you talking about? Yeah, things? let's 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 do let's do some uh, let's do some docs. Um, we don't just have docs, Wade. We, got we some, have we've docs. Amazing docs. I mean, what's up, docs? We have three from Errol Morris on uh-huh. two Blu-rays. Criterion, baby. Criterion. Yep. Go get it now. Gates what? of Heaven and Vernon, Florida. They are packaged together in one beautiful Blu-ray. Gates of Heaven is, of course, uh, his landmark documentary about. Um, Pet cemeteries and the people who uh, lose their pets and 
want to bury them in cemeteries. Um, that one was put them on the map. It's a masterpiece. It's just completely awesome. Then the other one is Vernon, Florida, which is an interesting little sidebar in Errol Morris's career. He had uh, created this, this. He was doing this documentary, which had, it actually had another name. It was called, um, as I remember, it was called Nub City. And he had gone to this, this small town in Vernon, Florida, just to see what the people are like. What happens in Vernon, Florida? That was the whole idea. Well, it turns out that the people in Vernon, Florida are completely eccentric, and they're just, they're not that articulate, and they're not even that smart. I mean, it is Florida, folks. Um, but they're just crazily eccentric. But they didn't like the fact that he was there. And there are stories about how, how Morris stopped making the film because he was getting death threats. And he wound up finishing the film in his own way and then rechristening it Vernon, Florida. And it's the, I guess, the B-side, you can say, of this Criterion Blu-ray, which is so fantastic. Um, I mean, he interviews all these great people. From, I, I, I think Vernon, Florida, it's a little bit overlooked because, you know, nowadays on the Internet, you go to, like, you know, people of Walmart sure. and all these websites sure. where you just see these eccentric, crazy people. Yeah. Vernon, Florida is that. It's the original. It's, it's sort the, of established it's, that genre, yeah. So, um, I mean, you've got people here who, like, have been known. This is Florida, Wade. You've got people who they'll, they'll, they, they, they cut their arms off for the insurance money. <laughs> okay, that's how crazy they I were know. in Vernon, Florida. So Gates of Heaven and Vernon, Florida are uh, on one Blu-ray, 2K transfers, in new interviews with Errol Morris. Um, it also includes Werner Herzog Eats a Shoe, um, which is the legendary uh, documentary, right? It sure is. That is I, I truly, I mean, I, the fact that that movie even exists is just a testament to the wonders of human nature. <laughs> It is. Uh, I, I didn't realize that. Yes. I, the thing is that I'm not sure whether that – because the thing is that the reason why um, Werner Herzog eats his shoe is on the Gates of Heaven Blu-ray is because it, it had to do with – there, there was a joke that um, Werner Herzog had promised to eat a shoe if Errol Morris ever finished the film, yeah. Gates of Heaven. Yeah. So what happens is that Errol Morris finishes the film, so Werner Herzog lost the bet and he ate a shoe. And so there's a 20 minute documentary on, Arab, on uh, uh, Werner Herzog eating a shoe called Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. So it's on this uh, Blu ray, and uh, just another reason to buy it. There's that. Also, we have another classic, Errol Morris. This is The Thin Blue Line. This is uh, from 1988. This is, the, uh, this is where Errol Morris really takes all of his, his documentary uh, expertise and his way with style and Philip Glass's music. And he creates this just dreamy, riveting, just revelatory documentary about this guy who was charged with murder. He had murdered a, a Texas, I think it was Dallas police officer, got sent to death row. And it turns out that maybe he didn't do it. So Errol Morris just directed the hell out of this thing. There's reenactments. There's interesting interviews. Again, there's a Philip Glass score. And this thing will it's, – it's, it's a whole new way to look at documentaries. The guy just knocked it out of the park. It's a classic. Um, so there you go. Another 2K interview. Uh, uh, sorry, another 2K transfer. New interview with Morris. Um, there's a new interview with Joshua Opp- uh, Oppenheimer, the guy who directed uh, uh, The Act of Killing, which I love, which Wade wasn't that uh, fond of. But uh, he's interviewed in this, talking about uh, the documentary form and what uh, how the Thin Blue Line fits into it. So uh, there you go, Errol Morris, Thin Blue Line. That's that's a must get. This freed a guy from prison. Yeah, I mean this this literally changed. I mean movies don't do that. Movies don't change reality. They don't save people's lives. They don't sort of, you know, change the justice system. This did. It's incredible. Yep. 
All right, we got some great stuff here from uh, uh, First Run Features, and uh, and one that's not, but sort of ties in with this other one. A couple, a couple with a Jewish theme here. Uh, this first one is Sukkah City. That is, I'm pronouncing it correct. Sukkah. Oh uh, yeah, Sukkah. Sukkah. And, um, and and not being of the persuasion, you can uh, correct me here. But you know, every year for the holiday of uh, Sukkot, is that it? Sukkot. Su- Sukkot. Yes. Okay. So every year for Sukkot. Sounds like something that I'm, I'd be you know, buying down at uh, Macy's. Uh, a suit coat. Do you have a suit coat? I need, I need a suit coat to go on top of my regular coat. I, I will sue you for a coat. There you go. So anyway, for that holiday, uh, it is a Jewish tradition to uh, build these little, uh, these little kind of primitive dwellings called a sukkah. And uh, this is this fascinating documentary in which uh, this Jewish author, Joshua Four. Uh, decides uh, we need to improve on the historic design of these little things because these are just really primitive huts and we got to do something really cool. So let's just have a competition and uh, use the basic description in the Bible as just a starting point, not an ending point. And let's just get some architects and uh, some really cool uh, visionary people and designers and everybody else. And let's just let's just really go to town. Let's just do a. Uh, you know, a, an American Idol type, design star type competition where we just really improve on what God already gave us. And that's what this is. And it is, it is an unusual subject for a documentary, but it is fascinating and really, really interesting. And uh, uh, I, 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 I just think it's a lot of fun. Uh, also from First Run Features is a film by Stephen E. Bram called Kabbalah Me. Uh, if all you know about Kabbalah is that Madonna and a lot of other celebrities have chosen that as Roseanne their, and Roseanne have chosen uh, uh, Kabbalism as their uh, celebrity religion du jour so that they don't have to go to uh, Scientology, you don't really know anything about it. Uh, perhaps you know a little bit from having seen uh, Pi, which was the film debut of um, You're Yawning. <laughs> I'm boring you, aren't I? I'm talking about Kabbalah and here you as a Jewish man. Are yeah, like, the, the, oh, what's been his there, name? Uh, the guy who did Noah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's wrong with us? I don't know. We've been we've been doing this too. I long. just hit the mic. I know. The brain brains are brains are. Uh, Black Swan. What's his name? Black Swan. Yeah. Noah. What's his name? I know. We're both drawing a complete blank. <laughs> anyway, that was his. We're f- the experts, by the way. Oh my <laughs> we gosh. Have no idea. This is what happens when you just start. You, you, your brain starts shifting gears. Okay, too hang on. Who, who's going to? Th- will, will I be able to Google it first, or will you think of it first? Uh, no, I'm not going to think of it first because I'm, I'm, my mind is on Kabbalah. Me. But Pi was the... Uh, this, this is unbelievable. Honestly, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, what the, Darren Aronofsky. Thank you, Aronofsky. <laughs> so Aronofsky's first film was Pi, which is, which is all about Kabbalism and a little bit. Uh, but anyway. I thought, it was about, I thought it was about pastries. Oh, maybe. No. This is, so this is, uh, this is a, basically a, uh, an overview of Kabbalah, of Kabbalah and what it is and where it comes from and uh it uh it, it's but it's not just academic it really gets very it gets into the people it gets into a very personal look at it even goes to israel at a certain point and uh he goes to all the experts and you get into the rituals and the all the all the aspects that sort of define it and it is very interesting and uh it i think it's uh, maybe the first film of its kind that i've seen that really kind of got into all of those details and nuances so i thought that was cool uh if you are a cycling fan and my wife is is cycling mad so i am uh, exposed uh, peripherally to all of this stuff uh, clean spirit in the heart of the tour 
is, uh, is something you're going to want to celebrate because in the middle of all of this doping stuff that was going on with the Tour de France and professional cycling and Lance Armstrong and all the others, I mean, there was so much, you know, so much doping going on, too many doping scandals, so many people losing their, their titles. Um, there was this one team that decided we are going to be defined by the fact that we are a clean team. We're just totally clean. And uh, you would hope that every team would, would do that, but that was the, like the definition of this team. And uh, they become, uh, they really broke through some amazing cyclists like Marcel Kittel, who is incredible, uh, really a, 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 just a tremendous cyclist. That's a, that's a strange Kittel of fish. Thank you. And uh, so this is, this, is, this is sort of a look at the, that attempt to build a team that would redefine cycling and, and take it out of its scandal-addled uh, past. And similarly, as far as uh, this, this whole athletic theme that we've got going on here, is a second chance. Uh, this comes from, the, uh, from Kelly Brothers Productions, and this is a Canadian documentary directed beautifully by Rob Kelly, which is about Janelle Morrison. Janelle Morrison was, if you don't know the story, was a uh, pro triathlete who, who uh, wound up almost dying in a car crash that destroyed her body. I mean, it was, it's, it's almost unbelievable that she even survived. What happened to her body should have killed her instantly. It's, an, it's a miracle that, the, that it was functioning at the end of this. I mean, what it did to her organs, her bones, everything. I mean, it just it completely destroyed her. And uh, this is about the medical professionals as well as her will and how she and the medical professionals all work in tandem to not only enable her to live again, but to be a triathlete again, to somehow repair her body and give her the chance to walk again, to, to you know, be a normal person again. It is, it's breathtaking. This is just an incredible story. It's so inspiring. It, it's gr- it is horrific in many respects, but it is, it is really just a, a, a miracle like no other in the world of sports history. It is, this is just one of the most amazing stories you will ever see. Um, Wait, I have something amazing. Yes. In my pants. I knew it. Gosh, why did we go there? Uh, we had a couple of uh, PBS uh, numbers for you. Sunken Ship Rescue is all about the salvaging of the Costa Concordia. That, of course, was the uh, the huge cruise ship boat thing that sank in 2012. That was just such, that was so embarrassing. It's because it was like he was hitting on a, on a woman, wasn't he? The, the captain was like... Yes, he was, he, he, he was trying to impress a woman he, by going as close to shore as he could, like he, hot dogging it. He was like, it was like Captain Steubing invited, you know, Sandy Duncan up to the, the bridge and just said, hey, watch what I can do. And next thing you know, crunch and people are drowning. It, you know, it was horrible. Just, it, it, no, 32 people died. And I, I'll tell you, those, th- those shots of the ship just listing on its side were oh. so tragic. There's, there's something about seeing like a, like a ship that big that in our, in, in, in our imagination is not turned over on its side, yeah. sinking. Just seeing it there was just this enormous it – it would be like seeing the Starship Enterprise, like just <laughs> tipped, tipped over and listed <laughs> over. It would just be weird. And it was there for years. Years, yep, before they, they started dredging it up. So uh, this is all about um, uh, the disaster, and then moving it off. It's uh, off that uh, that underwater cliff it was on, and uh, out where they can kind of take a better look at it. And uh, yeah, there's hundreds of divers and engineers that uh, were working on this thing. So if even the, the the visuals themselves are worth it of just that ship listing around, it just was crazy. What's that, Wade? What do you got? I've got a doc called A Path Appears. Uh, this is by the people who did uh, Half the Sky. 
And this is a just whopping... It's almost too long, actually. It's four. It's a four-and-a-half-hour-long documentary. This is also from PBS. Uh, from the Independent Lens people, which is just this enormous canvas of activism uh, that that deals with... It's not just about gender inequality, but it sort of looks at the gender issues around the world and uh, especially in the third world and how this results in broken families and in, you know, orphans and abuse and, uh, you know, abused women, abused children, sex trafficking, uh, childhood soldiers, all of this stuff. And uh, it, you really go into, it just goes into the ends of the world. For four and a half hours, you're just being dragged through this just so much depression. But it does wind up being um, actually rather inspiring at the end. And uh, fortunately, you have a lot of celebrities who have lent themselves to this. George Clooney does the introduction. And, you know, you've got uh, Blake Lively and Jennifer Garner and uh, Mia Farrow and various people who show up along the way. And uh, that kind of gives it a little bit of, of a boost. It makes you feel like the, you know, the world is not completely coming to an end. There's a little bit of star value. But um, it's very thoughtful. It's very provocative and uh, very impactful. And uh, so, but you know, be prepared to sit down for four hours and have, you know, have, some, have an IV while you're at it because you, you, it, it's, it's taxing. It's emotionally taxing. And that is called A Path Appears. Uh, wait, gun down. The power of the NRA is a uh, PBS uh, frontline look at the NRA and how they went from a bunch of, you know, gun enthusiasts to the, the a Nebraska uh, Research Associates. <laughs> exactly. I wish. Jeez. To uh, to just just you know what they they they're like the worst. You know you know like when 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 people think how how uh, like how how conservatives think that like unions. Or like the most evil things in the world, like they hate IATSE and it. That's what liberals think of the NRA. I know. Just the worst and most just just dug in and transigent evil union in the entire world. That's what the NRA actually is. Um, and so uh, yeah, so they've taken our right to bear arms, which is guaranteed the Second Amendment, and turned it into this enormous just lobbying lobbying yeah. money power grab that goes way beyond. I mean, any perceived. It is. It is. Slight. It is really extraordinary the power that they that they wield. It's really extraordinary. Even uh, even even though it's been diminished in recent years as a lobby, uh, because I mean you know I know a lot of gun owners are like uh, the the you know gun owners are. It's not like all gun owners are NRA members. It's a very specific subset of gun owners. It's a lobby that represents only certain gun activists. It's it you know it's not sort of the blanket a, a, a lobbying organization for people who own guns. Yeah, but they're also very, very loud. Yeah, and even even if their political clout is is you know illusory or yeah. not, it, it is to Congress. I mean, these it guys. Is. When Wayne Lapierre calls you, you take that call. You do what he says because sort of he's he's going to threaten you. You know, you know, how, like, like like people say, like like yeah. like Je, uh, Jesse Jesse Jackson is all about the shakedown. Yeah, you know, he calls a congressman yeah, well, and says it's, uh, it's Sharpton now. I mean, Sharpton now. You know, yeah. Sharpton is all about the shakedown. You know, you say this good thing about African Americans, we'll make sure you you, you never get reelected. Yeah. That's what that's what the NRA does. Yeah. You know, it's true. So, um, gun down. Very, uh, it will make you angry unless you love the NRA, in which case it will make you happy. Yeah. But they talked they talk to both sides of the issue, which is nice. 
By the way, speaking of the, of the shakedown, what do you think about this whole Byron Allen lawsuit against Al Sharpton? And uh, yeah, I, I haven't been tracking that uh, because I uh, you love Byron Allen. You you like revere that guy. Well, you know, here's the thing about Byron Allen. I mean, I I admire the hell out of the guy because he's like the ultimate entrepreneur. He really is. He really is like a self starter. He, he uh, Byron Allen went from being a stand up comic who co hosted That's Incredible. Right, I mean that was that was it, right? Sure. It, was, it was that 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 was his claim to fame. I was stand up, and and he was never really very good stand up. He was never that funny. He was just one of those guys who was sort of in the mix in the eighties, and he showed up, and he and he and he did the job, and he was on that's incredible. And he was likable, and he was funny enough. And I, you know, I knew people who'd bump into him at clubs and whatever, and he was just on the scene. And then somehow this amazing inner entrepreneur emerges, and he creates this whole strata. Of syndicated shows, you know, uh, comic lie, comic. What is it? Comic strip live. What are you doing with your microphone? I'm holding it in my hand, okay, well, as opposed hey, to. Hey, hey, well, not yeah. going. Yeah, oh, please keep talking about Byron Allen, Wade. Well, but hey, I'm, I'm just saying. Don't he, interrupt he, that conversation. He this whole strata of shows, you know, comics talking to each other in this talk show and that reality show and this talk show, and all really inexpensive to make shows that nobody ever sees, but they run at like two in the morning in Nebraska or at you know uh, odd hours in the afternoon in, in Indiana. And he syndicated these things and he built this empire of shows. And if you go to his website, you're like. I've never heard of any of these shows, but they air, they get made, they're profitable. I mean, he built this, he found a niche, right? He did what all great entrepreneurs do, which is he said, this is a space, this is needed, nobody else is serving this demographic, nobody else is, is, is serving this need, I'm going to fill it. And he did it, and he's, he's made himself enormously rich and powerful as a result. Yeah, I, he may be rich. I think he would take half the money and, and get any syndicated show on a network. Yeah, maybe, but it's, he's done such a good job with what he what oh, it is. Oh, yeah, I mean, but he's really still impressive. Mis- yes, I agree. But he's still Mr. Two in the Morning. Anyway, it's, it's true. He's still Mr. Two in the Morning. But the lawsuit against Al Sharpton is fascinating because when you read the details of the complaint, there, there is some really interesting stuff in there. There's some really it's, – it's not just I'm mad at Al Sharpton because I blame him for me not getting any of my shows on network, which is what a lot of people are saying. is like, ah, he's just bitter. You know, Al Sharpton's on MSNBC and he wishes he were. It's not. I mean, there's some really – there's like some day and date sequence stuff where you're like, oh, wow, really? That happened? Like this happened and then that happened and that happened and then Al Sharpton got his show. And you're like, that is interesting. I didn't know that. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. I, I'm really curious to see what the, the, the course on that is. Can we never talk about Byron Allen again? We won't. You know what? <laughs> Penguin Post Office. We're going to talk about Penguin Post Office. We're segueing from Byron Allen to Penguin Post Office. Peppa Pig? Penguin Post Office. Peppa Pig? You know what? There's, um, there is. Did you know that there's a post office in the Antarctic? Did you know that? It's a British post office. It's, it's where letters to Santa Claus go. Nah, no, the, Ant- the Antarctic. The Arctic is where Santa Claus is. Antarctic is South Pole. Santa Claus isn't in the South Pole. He vacations in the South Pole. You knew that, right? Anyway, um, well, down there, there's a colony of penguins. They uh, 3,000 penguins down there, and uh, these are their breeding rooms, their breeding grounds right next to the post office. And uh, it, this isn't quite like um, March of the Penguins, but if you like March of the Penguins, you'll love this. It's, it's really quite fun, and penguins are just awesome animals, and I think they're, you know, truly wonderful and hilarious and we talked about them last week the penguins of madagascar and i uh i, I think this is uh, this is pretty great so penguin post office is an episode of nature uh big bang machine another uh, pbs uh number this is all about the uh search for the Hig, uh, higgs boson particle this is where they're going to try to uh recreate the big bang 
and uh, it's interesting stuff. That, that that whole that whole thing looking for the I, I tried to sort of follow the science on that and understand it, and it just it just it just it gives me a headache. A I don't point. think it's really for like plebes like you and I to figure yeah. this out. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's uh, no. I I saw this when it originally aired on Nova, and uh, I got through maybe. I got through maybe 20 minutes, and then I started thinking about what I was going to have for lunch the next day, and, and then I was out. And I, honestly, if you, if you think about anything else for more than like 35 seconds while you're watching this, you completely lose it. Well, also— you'll, you'll be lost for the rest. You know what's interesting? Look at the, uh, look at the font they use for the— uh, for Star the, Trek font. It's the Star, it's the Star yeah, Trek font. So they use the Star Trek font yeah. for the DVD cover, which means that, oh, my God, it's science fiction. It's going to be cool. Yeah. No, it's pretty much the search for like— like all the stuff and all the stuff that gives the universe mass is what this is about, and so it's very complicated and very heady, but uh, pretty cool. So, uh, the Forgotten Plague is a really, really uplifting and enlightening documentary. It's an install, uh, installment of the American Experience. This is so beautiful. It's all about tuberculosis, Mark. Uh, you know, once upon a time, tuberculosis just w- ravaged the world. Everyone died of tuberculosis. When you look at the list of famous people who died of TB. It's like ridiculous. Like almost all the Bronte sisters, half of England, two thirds of France, uh, about fifty percent of the American colonies. Tuberculosis just rabbit every time. It's like and when you watch an old movie, right? We always know that person is done for when someone pulls out their little handkerchief. This is such a movie cliche, isn't it? Yes, I'm not feeling so good. <coughs> they they cough into their cough into their little white linen, and then they look at it, and you see a drop of blood, and you're like, oh, dude, T, you got TB. You're so done for. It's over. They might as well be turning into a zombie. That's it. They're <gasps> all, it's over. It's a over. Zombie. So uh, tuberculosis. That said, the forgotten plague. Um, we forget that tuberculosis is still around. People still get it, and it is kind of on the rise again. Uh, so um, anyway, tuberculosis is considered the forgotten plague, and uh, this goes into the history of it and really kind of puts a uh, you know it, it puts it in perspective so that we understand that this is not something that has been sufficiently eradicated and uh, when you see you know when you see even in the recent history what this has done it's very sobering so um, you know you should be prepared for this but it is you know American experience is always excellent and this is quite good also interesting here's a little story you didn't know so when Ben Franklin died uh there were like dozens of bodies in his in his basement, and this whole PBS special Ben Franklin's Bones tries to get to the bottom of why were the why were the remains of twenty eight people uh, in Ben Franklin's former residence, and so they dive into the idea that you know Ben Franklin obviously was an inventor and a very curious man, and maybe some of it had to do with some medical experiments or medical advances he was working on. And uh, it's a really interesting little um, side note to history that uh, PBS has um, unearthed in Ben Franklin's bones. So, uh, you know, no one's going to buy this, but uh, if it's on Netflix or something, you know, it's like a documentary. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty good. I thought it was kind of interesting. I'm not going to tell you what they, de- what, they, um, what they found or decided upon because I would give it away. But uh, it's good. Good stuff. All right, we got some foreign language films we're going to go through. We haven't done foreign in a little bit. And um, uh, we, uh, boy, this is, I don't even, I, I, this, this film just really stumps me. R100, 
by a very uh, enigmatic, eclectic, and unusual Japanese director named Hitoshi Matsumoto. Um, R100 is such a bizarre movie. Uh, It carries the the, uh, very intentionally tongue-in-cheek subtitle, Not Suitable for Anyone Under the Age of 100, which you, you go, oh, that's funny, that's cute. No, it's actually part of the film. Um, there's a quote on the cover from Eric Cohen at IndieWire that says, like Fight Club, directed by Luis Buñuel. That doesn't even touch it. So let me try to do my best to describe R100 for you. This is from Draft House. This is on Blu-ray. And this is really an acquired taste. It is a strange, cultish Japanese movie about a guy who has... And in the age of Fifty Shades of Grey, this makes Fifty Shades of Grey look like Pinocchio. This is just crazy. About a guy who has a bondage fetish. And he has signed a contract with this, uh, sub, this very shady firm who will send a mistress, a dominant mistress, to seek him out in his public life. At whenever, you know, like he might go be at work and walk into the restroom, and here's a woman in stiletto heels and, and garters with a whip who suddenly will just like start beating him and torturing him to the point of ecstasy right there in the, in the restroom. And the, re- the points of ecstasy is always like this little gong sound and then a little ripple on his face. And you get, it is just a weird movie. And he decides at a certain point he doesn't want to be part of the contract anymore, but they won't let him out. And then, and then this has interludes where you presumably are exiting the movie and you see executives walking out of the screening room to talk about the movie in the movie as if it were being made by this 100-year-old filmmaker who doesn't think that anyone will understand it if they're under 100. And they call attention to every plot point that doesn't make sense, which none of them do. It is a weird, subversive, psychosexual, Japanese, underground, culty, meta-meta, bondage-and-discipline, softcore art film. And there's just no other way to describe this thing. It is completely off the wall. It is totally weird. I'm not sure that, that, uh, it, how much of an audience it has, but if that sounds like your thing, watch R100, now on Blu-ray from Draft House. Wait, um, that was a mouthful. I can't believe I pulled that off. Okay. Aguirre. Uh, see, now that that's all you need to say, right? <laughs> that's all you need to say. And I just go, there you go. Kinski, Monkeys, Herzog. I'm there. I'm you done. Know, with, with this film and Fitzcarraldo, Herzog had this little moment when he was into these, like, just <laughs> dr- driven to the point of insanity men going into the jungle and doing weird stuff. Yeah. Now Fitzcarraldo, which is great, this is even better. Oh, it's so much better! I got to tell you, one of the one of the great one of the great moments in film school was in my European film history class when we were shown Aguirre. Is anyone can watches this on Blu-ray? I, you're going to love it, but there's nothing like seeing this with an audience. Because by the time you get to the end, and Klaus Kinski is going down the Amazon on a raft, chasing monkeys in a circle around the raft, that is. So funny when you see it with an audience because you hear suddenly 200 people laughing hysterically in tandem and you realize Herzog does have a sense of humor. But, those, but it's the kind of thing that almost has to be seen with an audience to really 
become the joke that it is. It's such a funny moment. It's a great film. It's a great film. Uh, it's one of Herzog's. It's probably Herzog's best. I, the I, music I, I is great. The music is crucial to its, uh, you know, to its success. It's really great. It's uh, yeah. It's about this conquistador who, uh, you know, he's trying to find the lost city of gold. Yep. Right. Yep. There it is. There it is. And it's beautifully shot. The vistas are amazing. It's it's a little like again, if you like Fitzcarraldo, uh, you you'll like this even more. It's one of those movies where it's kind of like. And it's funny because, you know, you don't really think of this movie in the same breath as like 2001 or Apocalypse Now. But there is that kind of audacity to it. With, Fitz, with Fitzcarraldo, or even more specifically, the making of Fitzcarraldo, you feel that audacity in Herzog's work. Here, all that audacity is on, is on, it's on the screen. So this is essential viewing. You've got to, anybody who loves film must rent this thing, if not buy at the end. Uh, there's an audio commentary with Werner Herzog. Um, there's actually two audio commentaries with Werner Herzog, and that's basically it. But uh, the movie is essential, and it's with uh, Klaus Kinski, who, of course, is crazy. Uh, I got three French films here. I'll go through real quickly, all on Blu-ray, or three French DVD Blu-ray releases. Uh, the first one is the amazing Jacques Rivette film, Le Pont du Nord, which means the, uh, the North Bridge. Yeah, don't uh, show off the French talking uh, thing. This is absolutely fantastic. Uh, Boulogier and Pascal Augier together in uh, one of the great uh, films by any French New Wave director, made well after the New Wave, of course, 1981. Um, this is one of Rivette's shorter films. It's just over two hours as opposed to, you know, four hours or whatever. Uh, he shot this all on location, 16 millimeter. And uh, it's this really fascinating uh, film about with Boulogier as a woman who's just been uh, released from prison who hooks up with uh, this, this kind of street person played by uh, Pascal Augier. And uh, they start following um, this guy, uh, Julian, who has a relationship to them, which I won't explain. They start following him around, and uh, it becomes this interesting kind of existential noir, uh, which really lets the, almost lets the city of Paris become like a, like a partner to this mystery, this kind of strange you know, caper thing that's going on. It's a, there's a little bit of La Ventura in this. Um, it feels a little bit like the same kind of film, but it's still very much, you know, French as opposed to Italian. Um, I, I just think this is a really cool film. This is from uh, Kino Lorber's uh, recent Studio Classics releases, and this is one of those Kino, Lorber's, Kino Lorber releases that I never expected them to come out with. Uh, also, Life of Riley, the uh, last film by Alain René, uh, which, like Alain René's last few films, is sort of just... Uh, going through the motions, collecting a lot of actors he's worked with in the past, and, and just, it's, it's sort of gently experimental, um, but has all of the people that you love in it, you know, Sabina Azema, Hippolyte Girardot, uh, and it is, uh, you know, like some of his uh, previous films, it's based on an Alan Ackburn play, so it has that theatricality, uh, and uh, it, it's, you know, if you, if you like Renee, you'll enjoy it. It's got some essays by Renee and uh, Glenn Kenny and some interviews in a trailer, and it's a lovely Blu-ray, especially for Renee fans. And then lastly, and long overdue, uh, thank you, Shout Factory. God bless you, Shout Factory, for finally giving us Jean de Florette and Manon of the Spring on a Blu-ray double feature. Um, right? Blah. Oh, gosh, this Blah. is just one of the, you know, what, together this makes one of the great French films of the past 50 years. It is masterful. 
Um, th- there's just nothing like this. Uh, Yves Montand is extraordinary. Daniel Auteuil is extraordinary. Emmanuel, Emmanuel Bayard is just magnificent. Claude Berry uh, outdoes himself as a filmmaker with this incredible adaptation of the, uh, the Marcel Pagnol novels. I have lived in the place where this takes place. Oh, just name drop. It's just, I just, I, I love these films so much. They are just magnificent, epic stories. And uh, Jean de Fleurette, Manon of the Spring, could not... I mean, this is from 1987, by the way. And 1987, uh, made in 1986, released in the U.S. in 1987. They could have submitted these films for Academy Award consideration, and, and you know, the, either one of them would have won the Oscar. But instead, they couldn't decide on which one they wanted to submit, so they decided to submit Au revoir les enfants. Which and, is not that, which not, is not, that's a, no, not a great film. No slouch either. So, I mean, it was just a great period. Jean de Fleurette, Manon of the Spring. Thank you, Shout Factory. Finally, in a double feature. Wee. Uh, wait, Force Majeure is a film I um, I just love a lot. I knew nothing about it going in, so I was like, "Hey, uh, what's this thing?" And it turns out that uh, you know it's it's billed as like to, uh, on the back of the DVD box, Blu-ray box, it says it's like wickedly funny. But I, I did not find this film funny. Um, it is this almost molecular distillation investigation as to what there's a tragedy in this film. And certain family members react to the tragedy in different ways. I'm being very vague. Mm-hmm. React to the tragedy in different ways. And when that happens, it starts to tear this family apart. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, totally. That's a, that's, I, I, without giving anything away. Without giving anything away. It's a I Swedish family, and they're on vacation in the French Alps. And while they're on vacation, something happens. This, this, this guy's going to get some work off of this oh, yeah. film. He'll get some Hollywood work, but here's which is th- what I think he wants. But, yeah, but here's the thing, though. Is he getting Hollywood work because there's an avalanche in it? Or is he getting Hollywood work because he, the guy just uh, dissects the you know, he, he dissects the relationship with his family and how it starts to fracture based on this event? He's going to get work because it was an awesome avalanche. That's <laughs> exactly. why. That's why. <laughs> That's like, just you know, Maybe we could put an avalanche in the next X-Men movie. <laughs> maybe it would be an avalanche of, like, spaceships. That's what somebody's thinking. This thing won the uh, jury prize. Yeah, it did. In Cannes. Sure did. The, uh, yeah, so it's uh, very, uh, very impressive. I like Force Majeure a lot. Uh, again, subtitles, uh, don't be scared. Dark comedy. Did you find this movie funny? Not really. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I'm crazy, but I didn't find I, yeah. I mean, it's a tri- I, I, this is a terrific movie. I like it I wouldn't it a lot. call it a dark comedy. It has funny edges that I can understand somebody would find funny, but I, it didn't really. It wasn't there for me. Uh, the Liberator was also a uh, this was Oscar nominated believe it or not I was kind of shocked that this got an Oscar nomination to be honest it is incredibly well done this is a Venezuelan film Uh, it's beautifully mounted I mean in every conceivable way Alberto uh, Arvelo does it um, with a fantastic performance by Edgar Ramirez Um, a huge just whomping epic about Simon Bolivar who is kind of like you know the 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 George Washington uh, of South America for a lot of these uh, these central and 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 South, certain South American countries like Bolivia and Venezuela, uh, he's just a legendary figure because he's the one that you know gave South American countries their independence, fought Spain and you know booted them out. And it is a big swamping epic film, beautifully photographed, really incredibly well acted by Ramirez. Um, but at the end of the day, and I hate using that cliche, but at the end of the day. 
it's really just another one of those movies. Man. When it's all said and done, it's just yeah. When it's all said and done, it's take just, it all around. It's just a it's just a, a big myth making thing about how amazing Simon Bolivar was, and it really doesn't give you any additional insight or anything else. So it's it's fairly skin deep, and it's uh, it's pretty obviously political. So I you know while it's well done, it just feels like one of those Chinese films that we keep getting those big opulent historical epics that all just have the glory of China at their at, at heart, and uh, I. Just can't get behind that. Wait, we are the best. Is uh, it's an interesting movie. It's uh, I like this movie. It's um, it's about these three uh, teenage girls growing up in Stockholm. It's got a lot of love from Lafka, by the way. I was surprised about. Wasn't that, that amazing? How many people voted for this? I know. I was like, went around why? the room and I was like, wow. Because it's about three girls in a punk band. It's it's, yeah. it's got like you know Amy Nicholson written all over it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it does. You know? Yeah. Not that the film's not good. I mean, you know, it's a little bit cutesy and uh, whatever, but still, you know what? It's warm and it's believable and it's got some funny moments and it's definitely a it's a universal growing up story, adolescent story, even though it's in Stockholm True. and it has to do with, you know, punk rock music. Um, so the the performances are very authentic and uh, you know, I just think it was kind of it's got a lot of life to it. I just think it was it was pretty cool. It's an interesting little uh, recommendation. We are the best. It's about uh, again, three um, 13-year-old, uh, you know, rebels growing up in uh, Stockholm. And they start a band. Yep. Come totally. on. Is that is that not a recommendation? There you go. 13-year-old girls starting a band, a punk band. It's, it's it. a fun film. It is a fun film. I just don't think it's that brilliant. But And then lastly, uh, the amazing uh, Taiwanese filmmaker Sai Ming Liang, uh, Stray Dogs. Uh, there's, you know, is, if you, if, Sai Ming Liang is acquired taste, definitely an acquired taste. But uh, Stray Dogs from uh, Cinema Guild. Is a uh, is a very very surreal but engaging and cool entry in Simon Liang's uh, filmography. Um, it's uh, it, it, the whole the whole thing here centers on this woman who takes these children in, who these destitute children, when their father just completely starts to disintegrate. This family that just sort of can't make ends meet. Uh, it is a it is a brutal but fascinating and kind of uh, almost surreal look. At this, uh, at, at at the the entire concept of family redefined in uh, in Simon Liang's unusual cinematic terms, uh, it's two almost two and a half hours long. So get ready for a real a real trip. But Simon Liang, amazing filmmaker, and the film is Stray Dogs on Blu-ray from Cinema Guild. Very very nicely done, and uh, some great special features as well. Uh, so definitely check that out if you are a fan of this particular class of Taiwanese filmmaking. And with that, Mark, we are done. We're done? We're done. The balcony is closed? Oh, that's not that's not our slogan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>